0: Oh, man. That's where I earn my paycheck, the children's yeah. talk. Everything else is easy. It's all downhill from here. So this Sunday is Palm Sunday. And I, uh, leading up to this Sunday, I was like, what did I preach on last year? Because I couldn't remember preaching specifically a message on the cross or Palm Sunday. And then I looked back and I realized I wasn't here uh, last year. And Jim Skelton filled in for me. So this is the first time I get to kind of emphasize um, Holy Week leading up to Good Friday, so I'm really excited about that. If you're unfamiliar with Palm Sunday, this is the Sunday um, before uh, Good Friday where Jesus uh, comes in Jer- Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and it kind of sets off a series of events um, that uh, all of the Gospels highlight as Jesus makes his way to the cross. It's this really intense week, sometimes called the Passion Week or Holy Week, and it kind of formally begins with with Palm Sundays, and people were waving palm branches and saying Hosanna. There's a lot of people who believed and longed for Jesus to be the long-awaited Messiah. And then as the Holy Week unfolds, people's expectations get overturned. And Holy Week obviously culminates on Good Friday, and that's actually where I'm going to land this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, I'd like, I'd like you to turn to Mark chapter 15. I'm going to actually read through the entire chapter of Mark 15. This is the last... Um, this is the final day of Jesus' life before his crucifixion. If you don't have a Bible, uh, it it will be up on the screen, so you can follow along there. This is Mark's account of the final day, the Friday, that we will be moving through uh, at the upcoming Tenebrae service. But I wanted to teach on it this morning, because I think it's incredibly important. Mark chapter 15 very early in the morning, the chief priests and the, with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, Are you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one who you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why, what crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. But they shouted louder, crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the place, that is, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him. Then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes, put his own clothes on him, and then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, and then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. And the written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and the other on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Oh, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it up in three days, come down from the cross, save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, but he can't even save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And when some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him, Jesus, and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day. That is the day before the Sabbath. So, as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. And when he learned from the centurion that this was so, he gave up the body to Joseph. And so, Joseph brought some linen cloth took down the body, wrapped it in linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. I've entitled this message, How the Cross Can Change Your Life. And by change, I'm not referring to the change that comes from a slight shift in awareness Uh, a small change in perspective, or the change that results from a modification to maybe how we approach certain things or uh, a slight tweak to our behavior. I'm talking about a change that so utterly transforms your understanding of the nature of reality that going back to your conventional way of living is just no longer possible. I'm referring to the change that transforms a life from one of very hollow self-centeredness and a very superficial spirituality to an abundant life tethered to a renewed life in spirit only found in Jesus. And I think that's the kind of change that actually understanding what's happening here in Mark chapter 15 can do and initiate in your life. And I know that's a big claim, but I think this text is going to back me up. I see at least four ways the cross can change your life that Mark is trying to highlight here through his gospel. Number one, the cross can change your life because at the cross, Jesus was taking your place. Notice there's an exchange that happens before Jesus goes to the cross in verses 16 to 18. Jesus and a murderer named Barabbas switch places. Jesus is sent to the cross instead of the murderer Barabbas. Someone gets spared from a death he deserves, that's Barabbas, and someone who should have been spared gets the death sentence. That's Jesus. And this is an exchange that is totally unfair. It's completely unjust. Jesus is the actual innocent one, but he is condemned. And Barabbas is guilty, but he gets his life back. What is going on here? What does Mark want us to see? Mark wants to make sure we understand what is happening when it comes to Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus didn't just trade places with Barabbas that day. At the cross, Jesus is trading places with all of us. Jesus is a substitute. He takes the place of someone else. He's trading places with those who deserve death and condemnation and removal from God's presence forever, so that those formerly condemned to that sentence can now get their life back, can now be no longer under that condemnation. When I've tried to teach this to my kids, I don't, the easiest way for me is to kind of say, to start when they're young, to say, Jesus took your time out for you, you did something wrong. You deserved a timeout. Jesus decided to serve your timeout on your behalf so you wouldn't have to. Now, as we're going to find out in Mark chapter 15, there's several orders of magnitude in terms of what Jesus is substituting himself in for in our place beyond just a timeout. But that gets at, for a little one, an understanding of, hmm, okay, Jesus is taking a hit for me that he. Voluntarily doing, that's, that's pretty gracious of him. At the cross, Mark wants us to understand Jesus is taking your place. He's taking my place. This switch of Barabbas, we're supposed to put ourselves in the place of Barabbas. We should have been condemned. We get to go free. Jesus voluntarily takes our place of condemnation so that we can escape the sentence of death. And if that is true, then that means that God really, really loves you. And I don't mean that in a a thin, sentimental way of love. I mean a kind of love that you have to really stretch the imagination of your heart and mind pretty far to begin to take hold of. God loves you to such an extent that he would put himself in harm's way so that you could just have an opportunity to come to know him in this life and to be reconciled with him, have friendship with him again, have a new kind of life that extends out forever. Romans 5.8 says, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not once we got our act together, not once we started becoming more religious, not once we started to say, I've been a bad person, I'm going to reform my ways, and now we've been living a good life, and God says, there you go, now. Now. I'll die for you because you've earned it. You're worthy. You've paid a price. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners, while we were rejecting and ignoring God, while we were living with our middle finger held up to God. God was fueled even deeper than his need to punish sin was his desire to rescue you. That's important for you to drill down to that individual level because that's what Mark is doing. He's not just showing us Jesus going to the cross, he's showing us beforehand Jesus and Barabbas switching places. And if that's true, that God loves you this much, that means that God is for you. Like God is fighting for you. And has been before God was even on your radar. Romans eight thirty one and 32 says, what shall we say then in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? See, if God loves you that much, if God is that for you, then if you hold any kind of conception of God as a vengeful, dour, bearded old man in the sky who's just looking for an excuse to punish you, that in anything in that vicinity of a conception of God has to be put to death. It just has to be, that has to be killed. The cross shows us God is um, animated by a love that you'll spend your whole life trying to understand and always be coming up short. And it's a very personal love focused on you. God is for you, and his tenacious love is never on display in a more glorious way than at the cross. This is a God whose deepest intent towards you is love and his deepest desire is to rescue you. It comes from the heart of someone who sees something beautiful and precious on the path to destruction and saying, I am hell-bent on making sure that person is not destroyed and I'll throw myself in harm's way if need be. Number two, the cross can change your life because at the cross, Jesus was taking your curse. Notice in verse 16 and 17, the soldiers led Jesus away to the place, the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They're gathering around him. They're about to do a kind of uh, really demeaning, inhumane mockery and beat Jesus, humiliate him publicly. And it says in verse 17, they put a purple robe on him, and then they twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. A mockery of his kingship, right? Oh, look at this great king crown of thorns, that would embed itself into your skull, lead to obviously profuse amounts of bleeding, very painful. Something that I hadn't thought through until this year was that, you know, I always thought about the crown, the kingship. I never thought about the thorn part. See, the first part you hear about thorns in the Bible is early on in the book of Genesis. First book of the Bible, third chapter, 17 and 18, God says, cursed is the ground because of Adam and Eve's sin, because of their rejection. God, and thorns result from God's curse. Also notice that in verse 33 in Mark 15, it says, the text is careful to note that there was darkness over the land from noon until three. In Deuteronomy 28 and Job 5, darkness at noonday is meant to be a metaphor for God's curse upon sin. Deuteronomy twenty eight twenty nine says this, At midday, you will grope about like a blind person in the dark. You will be unsuccessful in everything you do. Day after day, you will be oppressed and robbed, and no one will rescue you. That is God's um, promise to those who will, of his people who will reject him and not walk in his ways and reject his commands. Job 5, Job says, God catches the wise in their craftiness, and the schemes of the wily are swept away. darkness comes upon them in the daytime, at noon, they grope as if in night. Thorns, darkness at noon. Both of these things are tied to the idea of God's curse upon sin. So what's going on here? It's not just that Jesus is switching places with us. He's switching places with us to take something upon himself that is horrific. Horrific. Jesus is taking upon himself on the cross the full weight of sin's curse. He's absorbing, as it were, all of the judgment and wrath that our thorns and our darkness, the ways big and small that we distort and pervert and destroy uh, the life that God has for us, the way that we disrupt that in the lives of other people. He's taking all of that upon himself so that we can be spared from that punishment. Because God is good, and God is holy, and God is so good, he can't let sin go unpunished. If you are a good parent, and your children do very, very bad things, you can't say, I'm a good parent, but my response to my children doing bad things is like, "Ah, what are you going to do? You have to intervene. You have to in some way punish that sin See, if Jesus is just serving a time out for us, right? Remember that Jesus is taking our time out for us. If, if all that's happening on the cross is we've kind of made a few mistakes and Jesus is kind of doing us a solid and helping us out in some way, not really sure how, but just kind of doing something really nice for us, showing us uh, in a generic sense that he loves us and that he identifies with us, then um, that's nice. And you'll look at the cross and you'll say, that's, that's pretty amazing, maybe a little bit over the top for what we need, but totally neat, I guess. Nice to reflect on. But the Bible says something different is happening on the cross. It says that he's taking upon himself that full punishment, that full curse that we should receive as people who've rejected or or ignored God. He's absorbing the full weight of our hell-bent rebellion. And he's doing that so that God can punish and destroy sin, which God hates, God hates that which um, corrupts human flourishing, human flourishing with God, human flourishing within the creation. He hates sin. So God wants to destroy sin, but how does he do that without destroying us? Because he loves us. And we see that happening in the cross. God taking upon himself the wrath and punishment for sin so he can deal with sin but spare us. This is why Galatians 3.13 says, If you read past Mark into some of the later books in the Bible, it says, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. For it's written, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And see, if this is true, that Jesus took your curse, then that means if you put your faith in him, you can live in God's forgiveness and blessing. Right now, See, there's no sin that's so vile that God is overwhelmed by it. There's no past that's so broken or so messed up, so dysfunctional, so selfish that it can't be swallowed up by God's love and God's forgiveness on the cross. There's no person who's a lost cause. We've talked about this before. There's there's no one who God looks at and says, wow, that's a different scale of sinfulness. I don't know what to do with that. God trade places with us and he took our sin upon himself, the curse of our sin upon himself so that he could shower us with forgiveness and blessing for those who would receive that gift. Jesus took your worst, he took our worst, he saw it all, he took it upon himself so that we could have forgiveness and now live our lives In the fullness that comes from knowing we are forgiven and we now live under God's blessing and God's love and God's grace number three the cross can change your life because at the cross Jesus was offering to clothe you verse 24 that that might sound strange but just bear with me for a second look at verse 24 and they crucified him dividing up his clothes they cast lots to see what each would get almost a throwaway line Seems strange. Um, Not a throwaway line. It's connected to a prophecy in uh, Psalm 22, which is a whole prophetic psalm about Jesus that was written hundreds of years before Jesus. But in Psalm 22, 18, it says, they divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. This is a fulfillment of a prophecy on one level. But there's another kind of layer to what's happening here. I mean, think about the picture. These are soldiers. These men are unashamedly and selfishly taking Jesus' clothes for themselves. And there's some real irony here that I think Mark wants us to see because the details show us a a really important dimension of the good news of Christianity. That through the cross, Jesus offers to clothe his people with himself. What do I mean by that? In Isaiah 61.10, this is what God says through the prophet Isaiah. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness, as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Again, notice the exchange. Mark is always pointing us to an exchange leading up to the cross. Jesus is stripped naked. He's completely exposed, he's physically vulnerable, he's beaten, he's shamed, he's mocked, he's scorned. But it was to ensure that those who had given their lives could experience his covering, his blessing, his forgiveness, his protection. We get exposure from our spiritual nakedness, And our spiritual vulnerability because we are covered by His righteousness. One of the favorite things my uh, probably youngest, Avery, likes to do when her friends come over is play dress-up. They will go downstairs. We have this huge bin full of costumes and clothes from all eras and genres. And uh, kind of an hour, an hour and a half can go by and then they're always coming up and showing their space princess cowboy and different mix and matches of what they've come up with. And you go downstairs, and it just looks like a Value Village bomb went off. It's just crazy. Um, and, I, and I thought about that in relationship to what is happening here where people are taking Jesus's clothes. Because when you think about a little kid playing dress-up, what are they doing? Like when a little kid is playing dress-up, what they're, what they're trying to do is put on an alternative identity. Just, even just for a moment. They, they know it's not going to last forever. But for a moment, what they're trying to do is to say... What is it like to put on a princess dress and to be a princess or to, to be a cowboy, right? If, if, I, if I dress up like a princess, I'm using that as a way to put on a new identity and transport myself into a fantasy land where I have access to, to new powers, um, new possibilities because of the fact that I'm now a princess. I'm not just Avery anymore, I'm a princess. And I get to leave my, my old identity behind, even if it's just for an hour. And I get to step into this new identity And and all the possibilities and all the stories that emerge from a a change of clothes. And see, that's what's happening here in the story. Except it's not imaginary. It's not fantasy land. It's what Jesus offers us here and now. And instead of it being an imaginary game of spiritual dress-up that lasts for a moment or just kind of a trick it actually changes the nature of our identity when we become clothed with Christ. And see, if this is true, then that means those who are in Christ, those who have embraced Christ, put their trust in him, accepted him as Lord and Savior. There's all different kinds of language, but it basically means someone who has said, Jesus, you now have my life. You are my Lord. I don't know exactly all that means, but I give my life to you. I want to receive from you forgiveness a new life. For those people, they have a new identity. They have been clothed with Christ. Galatians 3.27 says, All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. He has covered your sinful shame and nakedness. That's all taken care of now. Now you get to go on the adventure of living out of a new identity. It's not a new identity where you're denying who you were before, but all of the image-bearing good qualities that that you had in seed form before, now when God begins working in your life, he begins bringing them forward. It begins fleshing them out and cultivating them. So you're becoming your truest self. And all of those things that weren't really who you were, that were just tied to your sinful disposition and rebellion against God, God, by his spirit and word, begins to put those to death. So you do live into a new kind of identity. And with that new kind of identity comes all kinds of new possibilities and new stories that open up for your life because you're no longer clothed in your old self anymore you have an entirely new horizon in front of you. And that means your past, your sin, your shame, your failures, your dysfunction, all of those things get covered over and dealt with through the cross. And not just that you're forgiven, but again, you're given Jesus' righteousness. And now you get to live out a new identity, which means a new mission for your life. Lastly, number four, the cross can change your life Because at the cross, Jesus was tearing open heaven for you. In verse 38, we read that when Jesus died, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if you aren't very familiar with temple curtain, what are we talking about? Um, Basically, you have a temple in Jerusalem that is seen as the epicenter of God's presence. It is the place where heaven and earth meet, where heaven and earth overlap and interlock. God's space and our space come together in a mysterious and unified way. But within that temple, there's still successive uh, circles, as it were, of holiness. And right in the middle, there's this place called the Holy of Holies. And only one person could ever go into the Holies of Holies. And only once a year on a prescribed day, in a prescribed way, it was the high priest. And you could only do it once. And there was a curtain that separated that holy place from everything else in the temple and then everything else in the whole world. And that holy of holies was thought to be kind of the it was the, it was the white hot point of God's presence. It was definitely presumed. I mean, you, you go in there anyone but the high priest going in that room under any other circumstances other than when the high priest is told to do it. You're, you're dead men walking. You are walking into, you know, it's kind of like you're walking right into the center of the sun. The sun's nice from a distance. Oh, that warmth is nice. That's not nice from one million miles out. It will destroy you. That's what this holy of holies is. And it represented God's fierce, the total concentration of holiness and love and goodness in, on earth. So when the curtain is torn the moment Jesus dies, that is to show us that God is now breaking into our world in a new kind of way. There's a new kind of access that's available to God, to God's presence, because of what Jesus has done. In and through Jesus, to, the curtain's down, the door's open. Anybody now. We don't have to hold God at arm's length. God isn't a God who's way far out there and probably doesn't care, want to be meaningfully involved in my life. God can now come close because of what Jesus has done. That's why in Hebrews 10 it says, this is a letter written to Christians, it says, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. There's no... There's no... uh, Blockage anymore in terms of our relationship with God because of what Jesus has done for those who are in Christ. And if that is true, that means that everybody that is hearing my voice, podcast, here live, everybody has access to eternal life right now. Eternal life is on offer right now. Now, eternal life is a, a Jewish idiom meaning you can't just take the words eternal and life and smash them together and think, oh, it just means life forever. It does mean that, but it means something much richer. Eternal life is the way that um, God-fearing first-century Jews talked about the kind of life you'd experience if everything was harmonized with God. If God were to come and establish his kingdom and if he were to rule and reign and his love and justice and shalom permeated reality... we'd we'd experience eternal life. Now, for them, it did mean, yes, when we die, we will continue on in that life with God in God's presence. But it also had this connotation that, at least for a first-century Jewish person, that maybe one day God would open up a way for us to take hold of that life right now before death. And that is what happens in and through the cross. God's abundant life, what Jesus called abundant life, this eternal kind of life, life under God's rule and reign, life lived within a comprehensive forgiveness and shalom and love and grace, that's on offer right now because of what Jesus has done. Anybody can step into that. And you can step into that completely independent of your religious performance, your moral performance. In fact, the people that often said thanks, no thanks to that when Jesus taught this were religious people who kind of thought, this doesn't really sound like something I need. Like, I'm, I'm pretty good. It was tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. Jesus called them the sick. To some people, he said, this is going to sound like nonsense to you. So if you're, if you're totally healthy and like you don't need anything that I'm offering, that's fine. I haven't come to call you. I've, come, I've called to come call sick people. I, I'm, I'm, I'm like a doctor. But if you're, total, like if you're like 100% health, I, I guess I don't have anything for you. But this offer is independent. It's not about, well, if I did these things and maybe if I started going to church more or started doing this, then maybe God would accept me. No, the curtain has been torn. Anybody has access as long as you go through Jesus. This is made possible because Jesus took your place. He took your curse. And if I embrace him as Lord and Savior, now I can receive his robe of righteousness on my life. And then his spirit begins working in me and by his spirit and by his word... It begins transforming my life into a new kind of life. And I begin learning, what does it look like to follow this Savior? What are the new stories that God is birthing in my life that, yeah, I want to walk away from these old stories, and I want to step into a new story? A new story for my relationships, for my friendships, for my parenting, for my marriage, for my body, for my vocation. It just, it impacts everything. And it's all because of what Jesus has done on the cross. It's a life that's so different from the life that you lived before. Jesus said it's like being born again. It's like a full reset, and you have to kind of learn and recalibrate to living life under a whole new set of um, parameters. Uh, it's, it's like the game has changed. It's like, wow, I no longer live out of shame or fear or guilt or insecurity or anxiety I now live out of grace and love and hope and security and with God's presence in me and around me and fueling my life moving forward as I learn to obey him and follow him in all things. Have you taken hold of that life? Because this isn't something that just happens automatically. You have to take hold of it. You have to call out to Jesus and say, Jesus, I don't have that life. I don't know exactly what it would mean for me, but I want it. I want to receive your forgiveness. I want to receive your covering. I want to turn away from my old dead end stories, and I want you to put new stories in my heart and life. I want to live for you now. I don't want to live for me anymore. I'm a wreck. I can't make my life work. I want to give it over to you. That's what it means to become a Christian. That's the starting point, and it's the continuing pattern of the whole Christian life. Every day saying, I give you my life, Jesus. Will you save me? And when we do that, Scripture says, what happened to Jesus is given on account of us. It's as if we suffered the punishment. We get all of his blessings, he takes all of our curse. This isn't something you can achieve, you can only receive it. The Bible calls it a gift. It's free, you can't earn it. It only happens, this kind of life, as you look to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want this. I want this kind of life. So my question for you this morning, and I do mean that you not in a plural sense, I mean it for every individual, is do you want that kind of life? that's on offer. It's on offer this morning. This eternal life that can begin right now and extend out forever. Life under God's favor and life under God's blessing. I'm going to do something I don't normally do. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask everyone to close their eyes and just bow their heads. And I want to invite anybody here. I'm not going to um, call you out or anything but if you would just raise your hand if this is a life that you want to take hold of, would you raise your hand if in your heart of hearts you're like I want to become a Christian I don't, I'm not a Christian or maybe I thought I was but this is different I, I thought being a Christian was just someone who tries to be good and goes to church this is different, I want to, I want to give my love forward to Jesus Would you just raise your hand quietly? If you have your hand raised, I want you to know that you are loved in a way that you honestly cannot even imagine. I want to lead you through a prayer. It's a very simple prayer. I'm going to pray it, I'll pray it one kind of line at a time. And I would just invite you to repeat after me. Obviously, you can do that quietly. You can whisper it out loud. But God will hear your heart and God will respond. So here's the prayer. God, I confess to you my sin. God, I want to turn away from sin and self centeredness. God, I want to receive from you through Jesus forgiveness and new life. And from this day forward, I want to follow Jesus with everything that I have. Amen. if you said that prayer I want you to come and talk to me after this service when we do our benediction and when we close and people start mixing and mingling I want you to come right here and I want, it, I want to talk to you okay this is really important let's stand together I'm going to invite Dennis up for a final song and as I do I'd like to close this time of prayer God, the cross can change our life. God, for new life breaking in, even this morning, we give you praise and thanks. God, I pray that the glory of the cross, the glory of your love, would just drill down into our hearts and change us by your spirit. We would never take the cross for granted, And that you would use this season of moving towards Good Friday and then Easter Sunday to renew us in our spirits. Restore to us the joy of our salvation. And God, for those who have, in a new and deeper way, handed their lives over to you this morning, would you flood them with a sense of your presence and your love and your joy? They would know that they are now secure And have stepped into the eternal kind of life which only you can offer. We give you the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. As you go, family and friends of Nelson Covenant Church. May the glory of the cross strike you anew. May the beauty of the cross transform your life. And may the power of the cross lead you deeper into the eternal kind of life that is only on offer from the King Jesus. May the love of God the Father, the grace of God the Son, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with you all this week. And all of God's people said, Amen. I'll be up front here.